Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 19. Continuing with our uh, Colonial Craftsman series, we're going to move into, quote, group work, not just the single craftsman with some apprentices. So let's, uh, let's talk about some of the groups where you have a masses of craftsmen working together. So uh, I think first we're going to venture... Um, one of my more favorite, which would be the shipwrights. So let's get started. So many of the uh, many of the trades in our past episodes could be and were carried on in small centers by one man or or a helper to or even an apprentice. But in larger places, the same trades employed many workers. Other enterprises especially those which combined many trades as shipbuilding did, had to be group efforts and can always be seen that way. One man could build a boat, but one man's life wasn't long enough to complete a ship single-handedly. Even if he learned all the skills he would need, one ship built in 1740 required work from 23 different crafts. The first English colonists all settled on the shores of bays and rivers. Fish were as essential as food were important as the trade item when salted. It took boats of some size to catch fish at sea. Trade between colony and colony and between even the colonies and the West Indies started quite early. The Massachusetts Bay settlers built a small ship of 30 tons. The Blessing of the Bay, it was called, at Maiden in 1631. Ten years later, Richard Hollingsworth Shipyard in Salem, Massachusetts, built a prodigious ship of 200 tons, more than half again the tonnage of the Mayflower. Soon shipbuilding became the leading industry of Boston and Salem, and the other towns all down the coast. Hamlet's sleep now along the Chesapeake Bay that once were thriving shipbuilding centers. Now they faded, not because demand slackened, but because they used up all the white oak timber nearby. So they, were, they would build the shipyard and then use the materials and then abandon and then move on. Kind of the way that we see our um, inner city decay and we see our farmland and our forests being chewed up in the mid-Atlantic states by these mega-company uh, warehouses like Target and Amazon and Walmart. Just this, the same idea. They faded, but, you know, so not because demand slackened. So, but remember, their choice of timber was white oak timber, but also was the pine for the mass. And remember, they were in, the colonists were in, deer or dire comp- competition for those white pine and so were the British and that's why the British saw us I think initially the colony setting up is one big timber one big timber manufacturing so the greatest asset of the American shipwrights was American trees in a century or so of overseas expansion England had depleted hers and the Royal Navy could hardly wait for the settlers to land before it began branding the brand or broad arrow of oaks for halls and tall pines for masts to be held specifically for the crown. 
But even a navy could use only a fraction of the American trees. America was that big. So English merchants could have ships built in America cheaper than even in England. So by 1774, a third of England's merchantmen had been built here. Almost a century later, American yards still built clipper ships for the empire's trade. There were also tales of early ships being built in the woods and hauled to the water on rollers by many oxen. Perhaps, but seldom, ships were built on slips or ways at the water's edge. They are now most often built at dry docks, and even in the 18th century, France and England had these graded basins which could be flooded when the hull is finished so that it floats where it stands and can be quietly towed out to the fitting dock for its masts. An 18th century slip was a series of squared timbers called stocks fixed side by side on a wooden foundation. A foot or so apart, in a long row sloping upward from the edge of the water at about four degrees. The new ship's keel was laid down in the middle a line of these, these stocks, stern toward the water as close to it as was consistent with dry working space needed to continue the operation. Temporary tree nails held the keel in place until the hull was ready for launching. Up until the 1700s, an English shipwright began working by making a complete scale model, fully rigged. He built his ship from it exactly. His 18th century successor made drafts of the lines on paper and from them cut out full-size patterns of the timbers out of very thin woods. These he often took into the forest and tested against trees standing, such as keel patterns, searching for natural growth that would yield the curves he needed. The Americans held to the model idea, but used it for the hull only, and since the two sides were mates, they made only half of it, hence the half-hull ship or half-hull model was born. So you may have seen these half-hull models in museums, built up of alternative layers of pine and walnut, varnished and fastened to a board. The varnish uh, and the board mean that the model's usefulness is passed because it can no longer be taken apart for measuring the layers as the master shipwright measured them one at one time. Most craft of all sizes in both the 17th and 18th centuries had fat bodies, flattish bottoms, round apple bows, and narrow elevated quarter decks aft. They carried a maximum of cargo at a minimum of speed. Most sails were square and set aftward to the dock. But the Americans began early to rig their smaller vessels with handier and more effective fore and aft sails set parallel to the keel. Boats so rigged became known as schooners. In the last corner of the 18th century, Chesapeake Bay shipwrights began building small schooners with a different kind of hull copied from a sloop used in Bermuda, which may, in turn, have been copied from a French fishing boat. The type came to be known as the Baltimore Clipper, and some of its features survive in the famous clipper ships of the mid-1800s. The original clippers had narrow hulls, sharp bows, V-shaped bottoms, and thin keels 
that became quite deep as they ran aft. Such hulls had little cargo space, but they could sail faster and carry more canvas for their size than any other boat before them, because they could run away from all the hostile ships. Clippers made the best for the privateers. So in spite of their small capacity, but because of their speed, they carried three-quarters of all American cargoes around 1812, and they also served as revenue cutters and as slavers. So some very old half models are sliced downward instead of horizontally to show vertical cross-sections through the vessel. These gave the successive shapes of the frames, which are the ribs, which, as can be envisioned, were built up to sections of two layers with overlapping joints, all pinned together. This was the only way that the necessary curves and the necessary strength could be combined in so large a timber. Keels were also built up, but somewhat differently. A squared timber, free of big knots, large enough and long enough for the keel of a ship, was impossible to get even from the huge trees of virgin forest. So the shipwrights joined shorter pieces with long scarfs and bolted them together. Since galvanized iron was unknown at that time, colonial shipwrights used copper and bronze bolts, which seawater would not destroy. The stem was scarfed into the forward end of the keel and the stern post into its after end. Both stood erect out of of the winding, true with the center line of the keel, and were propped up in place until they could be supported by the structure. So you can imagine that how this, this uh, in your mind, this type cutaway will explain the construction of a wooden ship better than words could ever do it. The closely spaced frames rested on the keel, and the keelson rested on the frames. All three were firmly bolted together. As each frame went in, it was braced from the outside with a couple of temporary shores. The lower ends of these stood on planks or shoals and were triggered in place with tree nails. The inside faces of the frames were completely covered by the ceiling and their outside faces were solidly solidly planked over with four-inch material. Carpenters bored holes and drove tree nails clear through the planks, frames, and ceiling, standing on staging, which was really scaffolding, to do the work. The stringer supported the middle of the deck beams and was braced by the stanchions. The knees supported the ends of the deck beams. And a ship with two decks had a second stringer, and a second set of stanchions and knees. The skill of a ship's carpenter surpassed that well of a landsman carpenter. It is too, lives depended on his work. Most parts of a hull were curved, some parts in two directions. The carpenter had to make these fit together with little more than his eye and his experience to guide him. Furthermore, he consistently constantly to watch the grain of the wood. He had to read the grain in relation to the stresses it would bear at sea. The grain had to bend with a curve, or at least lie parallel with the cord of it. 
If it ran out, a curved timber would split under the stress of the grain. That's why the shipwright sought natural curved growths for sharply bent members like knees, and it's why he built up the ribs with short pieces. Curved parts of many small thicknesses, which took no great strain, he could soften with steam in a tight box and bend them into shape. Planking, ceilings, and decking were bent this way all the time. Even ornamental trim involved curves and odd angles. The paneling of the captain's cabin at the stern had to be fitted to a room with a curved and sloping floor, and ceiling in with the walls that sloped and even bulged out a little bit. Ship joiners became so used to off-square panel and off-square woodworking that when they worked ashore, they sometimes raked panels on perfectly square walls. They had a very difficult time making supposed square things square. Behind the carpenters came the caulkers to stuff all the seams with oakum, pressing it in with the with wheels and driving it tight with flat irons struck with banded wooden mallets that had long heads and short handles. Oakum is hemp, hemp fibers from old rope, untwisted and picked apart. Picking it was the work of pensioners and other, um, actually pensioners and prisoners. And they would they would take the, the oakum in and you know, many weeks ahead of time, and the prisoners would pick it apart. And after the caulker had packed the seams, his helper paid them with hot pitch. Caulking didn't end with the planking or even with the deck. Every crevice that could possibly leak water had to be stopped, including the scarf joints in the keel. Even so, all wood ships leaked. And pumping the bilge was a daily chore. So don't think by any stretch that these ships were dry. They were constantly leaking, constantly sinking. And uh, you would have uh, men with pad using their arms, uh, almost like a, a new gym device, you know, to, to strengthen your arm movement for swimming. Or actually sitting in a chair-like affair using a, a treadle-type, bicycle-type motion to keep the pumps going. Everyone would take shifts. When the last tree nail was driven and every seam was tight, when the whole bottom was thoroughly tarred and it was no longer to be done, sheathed with copper, the ship's rights laid nails, called bilgeways for launching. These were timbers placed across the stocks parallel to the keel and well out from it. They extended into the water. The carpenter then built a cradle under the ship, and resting on the top surfaces of the ways, which they greased with tallow and soft soap, to keep the craft from going overboard before its time. Two short timbers called dog shoes or triggers angled against the crater cradle and held it back. These were carefully shaped and so placed as to allow a blow from above to knock them away, and then the boat would be on its way down to the water. Weights, suspended above each trigger, dropped to accomplish this. The shipwrights removed the tree nails that held the keel to the stocks, but the weight of the hull still rested on it. Now many men, working in unison with mauls, drove wedges under the, the bulgeways to raise them. The cradle and the hull 
until the keel came clear of the stocks. A launching was a major ceremony, as it was now, but it, there was many more back in the day. But instead of a, a lady christening the ship, the oldest sailor present did the <coughs> did the office. Notables gathered, and however, and maybe even a clergyman blessed the ship. Then, at a signal, two men swung axes and cut the ropes and dropped the weights on the dog's shoes. For a moment, there was stillness. Nothing happened at all. Then, a creaking and a creaking and a creaking and a slight motion and the whole great balk. The cradle was sliding. The speculators held their breaths, and the master who feared for accidents held his. Speed picked up. The rails smoked with friction. They then flamed. The crowd yelled. And, with a rush, the new ship began sliding down its ways, plunging into the water, and floated free of the cradle for the first time. Its impact created a huge wave, which, in narrow rivers, sometimes backwashed and drenched the spectators. Henry W. Longfellow described the launch of a fully rigged ship and apologized for doing so. Normally, the riggers didn't take over until the ship was in the water, and their complex work took nearly as long as did building the hull. Their first job was to bring the ship broadside to the shore so that they could use the shipyard's big windlass to careen her over to the side for st stepping up the mass. These were the trunks of white pines, two feet thick or thicker at the bottom and 40 feet long. No equipment of the time could lift their whole weight or lower it into the deck and down to the step of the keelson. It was labor enough to raise one end and inch it through the partners horizontally. So once the masts were in and guyed by the shrouds, they could be used as derricks for hoisting the top mast and the top gallons. As each went into place, the rickers guided with its standing rigging of shrouds, forestays, and backstays. Russian hemp, which wouldn't stretch much, served for these. Then they went on to raising spars and providing them with running rigging that would control them. Manila hemp, or even local hemp, would do for this application. The resulting maze of stays, braces, bowlines, halyards, and downhauls, perfectly simple to a seaman. It is a mad cat's cradle to a landsman. Rigging was slow, careful, and tarry-type work. The end of every line had to be severed and bound with maritime twine to keep it from fraying. Wherever a line would, would chafe, it had to be protected. A line too short had to be spliced in to lengthen it without increasing its thickness so much that it would bind in a block pulley. There is a town on the east coast of this country with a very wide street landing leading from its harbor. and its foot, there was once called a rope walk, a building a thousand feet long with a narrow road on each side of it. When the town grew and the rope walk vanished, the city fathers simply extended the road for a full width inland. And this can be uh, this can be seen in La Rochelle, 
when the Ermani, the uh, Lafayette's ship and the reproduction ship, there is still a, a thousand foot um, rope area there that uh, you can go to see where they actually make the rope or rope building. So it's uh, pretty amazing stuff in La Rochelle, France. So, but, um, so in this long building, um, a roper spun hemp, backing slowly away from the revolving hook turned by an apprentice manning the crank. The roper wrapped a handle of hackled hemp around his waist and fed fibers from it to be twisting lengthwise, thus lengthening, lengthening the yarn. Next to him, two men twisted two yarns into a strand of marline. One of them turned a crank and rotated two whirl hooks in a direction opposite to the twist of the yarn, so that the strand would not unwind. The second man formed his strand by guiding the yarns through two spiral grooves cut into a bullet-shaped wooden block called a top. Beyond this pair, another team used three whirls, and these were connected to whirl hooks, again for the reversing the direction of rotation, to lay three strands or, for large sizes, three groups of strands into one rope. Their top had three grooves in it, of course. The strands reached from the hooks to a swivel, which was called a loper. And at the far end of the rope walk and the man guiding the top of the blocked from it toward the hooks of, that he was working. Still farther over were more reversing on a twist. Several men labored to lay three ropes into a ponderous cable that would stay on the main mast or hold a ship to its anchor for many years. The gear for handling sails was a business of the rigor, but he did nothing with the sails themselves. They would be bent on by the way the ship's crew when it took over. Meanwhile, they had to be made in a sail loft large enough to spread the main sail flat out on a floor. There, the sailmaker cut his linen or hemp canvas into length after length of it, which he seamed together with strong twine. His skill lay in cutting the sail so that it would belly just enough under the pressure of the wind. The sailmaker's needle was four inches long, and he pushed it through the cloth by pressing against its head with a dimpled brass stud on his leather palm, which he called a panum. He made a strong hem all the way around the sail and whipped the bolt rope onto it. Into the corners of the bolt rope and on the leeches and across the foot, he spliced rope cringles to which the various controlling lines would be fastened. Across the hem, at the head of the sail, he punched holes which became grommets when he reinforced their edges with twine. Much of these buttonholes are bound with thread. These were for the lash lines that would hold the sail to its spar. Across all the larger sails, he sewed from one to four strips of canvas to strengthen the rows of grommets that would hold the reef points. These would be tied up to the spar to shorten the sail when the wind blew much too hard. Without counting any of the extra or contemporary ones, the sailmaker made a round dozen sails for a three-masted ship. Two kinds of blacksmiths specialized in 
nautical ironing. We may call them the light work smiths and the heavy work smiths, though the terms are made up just for the particular occasion, I must say. The light workmen used the normal equipment on their horseshoeing fellows. They made the thousands and, and one of special fittings for a ship that was needed. For instance, every wooden block for the lines that handled the sails. It took about two dozen for the foresail alone. Had to have an iron axle and iron band around it to form the bottom and a swiveled eye by which it was fastened in place. Often, two blocks were banded together, one above the other. Iron bands around masts and spars were holding this, and that had to be individually forged. So did the grungeons and the pintles, on which the rudder swung, so did all the chains. So the man we called the heavy-work blacksmith might be also called the forger, with no reflection on his honesty, though. His principal product was anchors, and he needed a husky crew to help make them. The anchor of an ordinary merchantman, say, you know, for a big sailing, four-rig sailing ship, could weigh as much as 4,000 pounds. So that of a frigate, said the Constellation, weighs five tons. A powered tilt hammer had to shape such a mass of metal, and to move it from hearth to anvil required swinging derricks in order to weld two parts to the anchor. The smith had to heat both simultaneously on separate hearths, each equipped with bellows, and then bring the two parts together under the hammer. That took two derricks and very fast work, so the iron or the metal wouldn't cool. I mean, uh, you know, just doing a, uh, enough blacksmithing to make a latch is a trick to keep it hot enough. Uh, it's almost inconceivable how... You could have one fire burning to make a small anchor, let alone a, a six, eight, ten thousand pound anchor. It's uh, it's almost inconceivable the type of bellows that would have been needed. You would need an army of blacksmith and apprentices to do it. So, uh, so the bottom line is an army of craftsmen are needed to do uh, to build ships. You know, and uh, uh, I mean I, things I just don't think we think of and days gone by. So. And just to remember the Hermione, which I did some carving on the back of uh, the back motif on the back of the ship. And uh, also in the cabin, uh, when I was in France, I mean, that boat took around 17 to 19 years from conception to finish. And I think initially the French thought they could build the boat, Lafayette's frigate, in, in about six or seven years. And it took years just to find the right timber because the, the old growth timber is so scarce. Um, and then they found the French found out that their their uh, craftsmen didn't have the skill, and they had to eat crow and go study in Southampton with the Brits, who built many more sailing vessels um, in the last century. So, uh, but just uh, just very very interesting stuff. So, I think we're going to cut off here. Greg Perry signing out, and uh, also um, if you're interested more from the historic preservationist, let uh, let me know. Um, find us on Instagram and uh, the historic preservationist with all lower uh, all lower letters and that leads to IGTV which is 15 minute videos and uh, you will be doing on site on site historic structures uh, on site museums 
or back in the conservation studio looking at and uh, explaining different uh, different clocks, different parts, and horologically related uh, topics, and also uh, furniture restoration, architectural preservation. So, And again, don't forget to go to our YouTube channel. Please hit that like button to subscribe. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks, everyone, for listening.